Hey everybody, the other day my daughter talked me into playing a board game with a bunch of friends and the name of this board game is Bean Boozled. It's a bunch of jelly beans, they're all in different compartments and there's a little spinner and it says this is the one you have to eat or this is the one you have to eat. And the, the tricky part about this is that you don't know when you pick that up which of two flavors it's going to be. So for instance, it might be caramel corn or that same jelly bean might be moldy cheese. And you don't know until you take it what it's going to be. Uh, there are other flavor combinations, coconut or baby wipes, juicy pear or snot, uh, lime or lawn clippings, caramel corn or moldy cheese, uh, butter popcorn or rotten eggs, licorice or skunk spray, tutti frutti or stinky socks, berry blue or toothpaste, peach or vomit. So you don't know what to expect. You're not sure what you're gonna get. And for the people who are part of this, it's all great fun, I suppose, for them to watch you and your expression, how you deal with when it's not what you expect it's going to be. Well, I wanna to talk to you today about a little bit about managing expectations, because we all have those expectations of what we think something's going to be, and then it turns out to be something different. Um, Nancy Guthrie is an author, Christian author, who wrote an incredible book on the book of Revelation called Blessed. And she writes it this way. She says, expectations. Do you have some of those? We all do, don't we? Sometimes they are clear. Sometimes we don't even realize we have them. Sometimes our expectations are based on what was promised us. Or sometimes they're based simply on what we hope for. Sometimes our taste buds are primed for a particular meal or treat, but it fails to deliver what we expected. Have you ever planned and saved for a vacation and found that the experience didn't live up to what you imagined it would be? The crowds were larger than you expected. The costs were more than you anticipated. The company wasn't as enjoyable as you had hoped it would be. There are so many things in life in which we have expectations. And sometimes our experiences don't live up to our expectations. And occasionally, they actually exceed what our expectations are, and that's all uh, even more rare. How about the Christian life, she writes. Is the Christian life what you expected it would be? Perhaps you started the journey with Jesus, expecting that becoming a believer in Jesus would mean that life wouldn't be as hard as it had been, that it would be less complicated. Maybe you thought that Prayer would be your resource for ridding your life of difficulty and conflict. Maybe you saw faith as a connection and prayer as the mechanisms to secure in life a life in which hard, bad things are the aberration, are the exception, way outside of the anticipated norm. Most of us would never say this is what we expected, but the evidence for or against it is how we respond when bad things happen. If we settle into a posture of anger or resentment toward God when he doesn't protect us from hard and painful things in this life, it reveals that our expectation was that he, he would keep things, bad things like disease and car accidents or abuse or betrayal or loss away from us and our families since we belong to him. What have we actually been promised? And Jesus made it real clear to us. He said, in this world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Today I want to talk to you about having daring faith for your desperate days. When things are not exactly what we may in our American minds have conjured up what our Christian walk should be. And we come back to the book of Revelation. 
Turn with me to Revelation. You got your scripture journal. You got your Bible. You follow along the screen here. We went through chapter one when we got this vision of Jesus Christ. We got chapters two and three, which are the letters to the seven churches. We enter now into the symbolic portion of the book where we're going to get all these crazy images and visuals and so forth. And it's going to be great. And we're going to learn it. And today we're going to get a lot of visuals. All right. Um, and I would just remind you that we're not going to necessarily get every last thing exactly right, perhaps, but that the main things are the plain things and that the plain things are the main things. I love uh, Alistair Begg said it that way. And it's not secret codes that we have to decipher. And we're not so much focused on the how is it all going to happen and when are these things going to happen, but rather on the who are they focused on and what is promised to us and why are they important. Through these visions we get, an ultimate reality is revealed to us that actually in some ways shocks us and in other ways encourages and comforts us. So the Apostle John pulls back the curtain from our everyday life of those seven historical churches in Asia Minor and on our lives to give us a grander vision of what's really going on because we need that. And Jesus in his mercy gave this to us. So, you know... I think most of us have understood, especially over the last couple of years and even in recent weeks, that we live in desperate days. I mean, life is not as normal. We perhaps grew accustomed to some of that in earlier years and decades, but we understand now that these are different days. These are difficult days and challenging in unusual ways. And how do we respond to those? Well, we have to remember uh, Revelation chapter 4, the grand vision of God who is seated on the throne. He's worthy of our lives. He's worthy to be worshipped. And then Revelation 5, last weekend, we looked at Jesus, the lion who, who triumphed, who's conquered. But he conquers by being the lamb who is slaughtered for our sins and then by being raised. He is the slaughtered lamb standing. So we have to keep in mind all the part of the book, Revelation 4 and 5, especially this weekend, as we turn the page into Revelation chapter 6. Because in this, we saw last week, the question was, who is worthy to open the scroll, the plan of God in the hand of God, the design, the promise, the meaning of life, the plan for our lives, for redemption and justice? justice. Who is worthy to open up that scroll? No one is worthy, but finally, the Lamb of God, Jesus, is worthy to open the scroll. And in chapter 6, he begins to break the seven seals on that scroll and thus open up for us the design plan for God. Only it doesn't go as we expect. Uh, it kind of surprises us. He begins to open up and we're going to look at each of the seals here in Revelation chapter 6. And the backdrop for all of this is, uh, is actually Jesus' teaching in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 24, very parallel to what we are going to look in in Revelation chapter 6. And it's also mentioned in the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Mark. Uh, as we get started, I'm grateful for many insights to people like Nancy Guthrie, Hosanna Wong, um, especially Matt Chandler, even last weekend, and uh, many insights, and Peter Hyatt. These are just really good teachers that I, I have, uh, I'll be sharing a number of insights from their perspectives. But the backdrop from all of this is, is Matthew chapter 24. And here it is. Right before Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead, he gathered his disciples together, he took them aside, and he began to teach them. It's, here's what it says in Matthew 24. As Jesus left and was going out of the temple, his disciples came up 
and called his attention to its buildings, how beautiful they were. He replied to them, do you see all these things? Truly, I tell you, not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. So Jesus is at the Mount of Olives. He's looking down on, this is the Temple Mount area in Jerusalem. Of course, the temple has been destroyed. It was destroyed about 40 years later, uh, according to Jesus' own prediction and prophecy. But this is where he was, he was kind of seated here looking down on this and they're looking at this spectacular temple and he says to them, not one will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. And while he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, now the perspective changes, the disciples approached him privately and said, tell us when will these things happen and what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives uh, up here in this place, looking back toward the temple, and he begins to teach them. And he answers two questions. One, uh, when will these things happen? When will the temple be destroyed? And secondly, what is the sign of your coming and the end of the age? They put those two together, but Jesus doesn't necessarily do so. In fact, he, he, he separates them, but they don't totally see this. Jesus replied to them, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. You are going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. Don't freak out when that happens. When you see wars, rumors of wars, false Christs, false messiahs, he says, these things must take place, but the end is not yet. So when you see crazy stuff happen in the world, that doesn't mean it's the end of the world. In fact, he promises it's not yet the end of the world. Very important to note this. Verse 7. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places, natural disasters, so forth. All these events are but the beginning of the labor pains. This is the beginning of the last days, the era that Jesus inaugurated when he ascended into heaven and those last days end when he comes again. But right now we're living in those last days and then there will be the last, last, last days, right? At his, or just prior to his second coming. He says, these are the beginning of the labor pains. Then they will hand you over to be persecuted. They will kill you. Wow, can you imagine hearing that? That you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Then many will fall away, betray one another, and hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many because lawlessness will multiply. The love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this good news, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So Jesus lays out kind of a picture of what it's going to be like. He says there's going to be all sorts of natural disasters, wars, rumors of wars, false Christs. That's just what you can expect in these last days, starting when he was ascended all the way in the days we're living in, right? By the way, we are going to dig deeper into this at our next Digging Deeper session, which will be on Monday night, the last days according to Jesus. So I hope you'll join us there if you'd like to learn a little bit more about this connection and what Jesus taught so clearly. It's fascinating stuff um, from what is called the Olivet Discourse or Matthew chapter 24. All right. So in Revelation 6, we get the apocalyptic imagery, kind of the visual teaching of what Jesus taught in Matthew 24. These same sorts of things, starting with what is known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So here's some artist renderings of these four horses of the apocalypse. They're very famous throughout history. Here's another rendering of them. 
Sadly, these horses and horsemen are all painfully familiar to us. We've seen them in our own day and quite ordinary in our world. In the last days between Jesus' ascension and return, he says, these are the things you're going to experience. And so Jesus begins to break the seals of the scroll open. The first seal gets broken open. Verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 1. Then I saw the Lamb open one of the seven seals, first one, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. Now these angelic beings are calling out and saying, come. And I looked, there was a white horse. Its rider held a bow. A crown was given to him, and he went out as a conqueror in order to conquer. So now you get the first horseman of the apocalypse, which is a rider on a white horse with a bow, a crown, and he goes out as a conqueror. This first seal, breaking of the seal, is on a white horse, and the meaning of it, the reality of the symbol of the white horse is conquest. It's conquering. And it's interesting because uh, in their age, in the first century, this was a familiar symbol to them because Apollo, the god Apollo, was pictured oftentimes. I think we got a, a photo of Apollo here. Uh, here he is. He was pictured as having a bow and a crown, and he was a conqueror. In fact, he was the one who was the god of prophecy, all right? So he was the one who foretold what would happen. Here's another uh, of Apollo, actually with a white horse. So you can see these sorts of images were familiar to those first century hearers and readers. And so what um, this vision is telling us, and we'll go back to chapter, uh, chapter one, uh, verse 1 and 2, what it's telling us in this first seal that is broken is that there are going to be heroes that arise, counterfeit heroes. They look like Christ riding on the white horse. Remember, we'll get to that later in the, in the book of Revelation. Uh, they look like him. He's got kind of a crown, but it's only one crown. It's more like the crown given in the games. And he went out as a conqueror in order to conquer. So these, he says, watch out for these. It's going to happen in every age. Counterfeit heroes. They look great, maybe even a little bit like Jesus. They make great claims. Remember what Jesus said, false Christ, false messiahs are going to go out? Yep. And sometimes they're called antichrist or antichrists. And there is a final last antichrist, capital A antichrist, to come at the last, last days. But there's going to be antichrists, kind of small a, false prophets, false messiahs, people with great claims, maybe even leaders who promise deliverance, they desire to rule, they take over, and have, they, they want to have their worldview predominate. And history has seen all sorts of dictators arise and false prophets arise that have led sometimes entire nations astray. Think of Hitler as one, but there have been many others. Um, in fact, Jesus warned us of, the, of this in that same Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24. He says, if anyone tells you, see, here's the Messiah over here, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So he says, so be careful of this. John, who is the one who's writing down this revelation, in his letters, 1 John warned about this as well. He said, children, it is the last hour. We're in the last era of human history. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, that capital A Antichrist, even now many Antichrists, small a Antichrists, have come. By this we know that it is the last hour, because we're seeing false prophets, counterfeit heroes. Who is the liar? 
If not the one who denies that Jesus is a Christ, false teaching. This one is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. They're doctrinally in error. But every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. So the spirit that's anti-Christian pretends to deliver, pretends, has all these promises, may even have miraculous signs attached to them at some point, but don't believe them, says Jesus, both in the Gospel of Matthew and here in the book of Revelation. Many deceivers have gone out into the world. They do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. They deny his incarnation. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. So we get this, the, 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 the Antichrist, actually that word never appears in the book of Revelation. But I think it's hinted at here in this break in the first seal. And that spirit of Antichrist has, the church has had to deal that, with that in every age. And so do we. False teaching. Rulers claiming to be gods, emperors, militaries, heroes, demanding worship. The seven churches, they hear this and say, yeah, that white horse with a rider came through our village last weekend. We, we've heard this before. And in our day, false teaching, weird cults, impressive dictators still deceive and conquer many hearts. I saw a commercial uh, a while back. This guy, this uh, crazy televangelist was offering the miracle spring water. You just, you know, send him your email address and you'll have on his email list for the rest of your natural life. The miracle spring water, it, it heals you, it brings you prosperity, you'll get filthy rich on all this. That's, he's promising this. And, I mean, that's an obvious one. Don't reply to that infomercial. But there are others that are more subtle. And he says this is going to be a part of walking with Jesus in the last days. Those are those days that we now live in, all right? And then he goes on. Verse 3, the second seal. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. So the angel calls forth this. Then I heard another horse went out, a fiery red one, and its rider was allowed to take peace from the earth so that people would slaughter one another, and a large sword was given to him. Here the second seal, symbolized by the red horse, red horse uh, symbolizes the reality of rage, of warfare, of people angry. Does this sound familiar at all? It's happened through every age. The age of rage, where people are mad about stuff, where there's conflict, there's anger, there's warfare, there's bloodshed, there's polarization, there's violence, there's terrorism. Paul, the Apostle Paul, told Timothy, know this, hard times will come in the last days. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, and then note, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the form of godliness but denying its power, avoid these people. So yes, in our age, the red horse rides again. It is the anger that we see in our, in our day. It is the rage that we see, the unforgiveness that we see, the bloodshed we see, the violence we see. Sadly, we, we saw the red horse just a few days ago in Highland Park. It's the reality that we live in. And Jesus says about those things, don't be alarmed by these things, but no, manage expectations here. That this is going to be a part of living in a broken, fallen world that is rebelling against God. Third seal. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked and there was a black horse. Its rider held a set of scales in its hand. Now this is going to measure money and products and economics. 
Then I heard something like a voice among the four living creatures say, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. What in the world's that about? Well, denarius was about a day's wage. But he's predicting and promising that in, at least in some places, there's going to be scarcity. There's going to be scarcity, okay? And a quart of wheat is enough for one person to eat. So he says, you're, you're going to have some money, but it's not going to be able, and sometimes in places, not enough to feed your family. It's going to be a fourth or a fifth or a tenth of what you really need to live on. And this is the experience of many people in our world who suffer poverty and affliction and economic scarcity. And then he adds, but do not harm the oil and the wine. These were also staples of life, but oftentimes when conquering Roman armies in their day came through, they would destroy the barley and the wheat, but they would not harm the, um, the olive oil or the olive uh, plants or the grape vines, the vines. Why? Because the other crops would grow back quickly and they could still live off that. But when these were destroyed, they're, they're crops that take 10, 12, 15, 17 years to grow back. And then even the conquerors can't live off the land. So they say, it's, in other words, all of this is telling us that there's going to be economic scarcity. So here's our chart here. Economic scarcity at times. But it's not, it's, it's not, uh, it's limited in its scope. It's not absolutely devastating. There are some things that won't be touched. Not all is wiped out. And the seven churches in the first century said, yep, that white horse came through our village last weekend. And there's some people in the church and the community that are really hurting. They're impoverished. That's part of living in a fallen world, says Jesus in promises. Fourth seal. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked, there was a pale green horse. This is the color is kind of a pallid, uh, almost like a corpse, really sickly looking. Its rider's name was Death. And Hades, which is the realm of the grave, was following after him. So it's like death's right there. That takes your life, your physical life. And then Hades takes your soul. They were given authority over the fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, by famine, by plague, and by the wild animals of the earth. This breaking of this seal, the pale horse, stands for death by calamity. Famine, plague, Wild animals, you know that many wild animals carry disease. We've, we've seen that, right? Can even cause pandemics. He says, but it's limited in its scope. He says, they were given authority over a fourth of the earth. In other words, 75% of people won't be affected at any given time. And of course, this is the life we experience on planet earth now. For some, that's the way they always have to live their lives. For us, um, that's not as much of our experience in America that we have typically experienced, but, but we do sometimes have these things. We have uh, death by calamity. Um, and these things are going to continue to occur throughout this era of history, life on planet Earth today. For some, it is always this way. For all, it is sometimes this way, death by calamity. So he's, in all these seals, four horsemen of the apocalypse, he's saying, here's what you can expect in this life. You can expect war, deceit, civil unrest, false teaching, violence, natural disasters, economic hardship, inequity, disease, famine, and death. Aren't you glad you're here listening to this? Wow. But part of this is to manage our expectations because so many times 
we're just caught off guard by these things because we say, well, no, nobody told me that my life was going to be hard. No, it is going to have difficulties. You are going to have challenges. But let's move on because there's some hope here. The fifth seal. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony they had given. These are the martyrs in the first century. Remember that some of the seven churches had already had their pastors killed by the Roman government. And these martyrs cry out, they're at the base of the altar where the sacrifices are made, their blood has been spilled out. They cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? What was their crime they had committed? Been followers of Jesus. They believed the word of God. And throughout history, there have been martyrs for the faith. And today, some uh, mission experts, uh, global history experts of the Christian faith have noted that in the 20th century, there were more martyrs in the 20th century than in the previous 19 centuries added all together in the 20th century. It was a difficult time for many people, many followers of Jesus around the globe. And they call out not for revenge, but for vindication. They say, please show that your way is true and that we are not false. And they're leaving the justice in God's hand. They didn't take revenge themselves. They said, that belongs to you, God, but are you going to do it? How long will this go on? And the response is in verse 11. So they were each given a white robe, which is to honor them and to show their purity and their goodness and their righteousness that God approves of, of them. And they were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been. So God oversees all that happens and he is in control, but he does allow for hardships to happen. Part of this is, is merciful in that he wants to drive people to repentance and to trust in Jesus. But there is a cost to following Jesus. He said, take up your cross and follow me. And for some, this will even mean they will give their lives for him. So the fifth seal, the souls under the altar, this is the symbol. The reality is martyrdom. And there are followers of Jesus throughout history who have been willing to lay down their lives for the sake of Jesus Christ. It's amazing. In the seven churches, there were already martyrs early on in the history of the church. And today it goes on in places like Iran, China, India, Afghanistan, and other places many, many of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in the persecuted church, even to the point of giving up their lives. And he says to them, hang on for just a little while longer, be patient, because the day is coming when God's justice will come against this world's persecution and depravity, which leads us to the sixth seal. Then I saw him open the sixth seal. A violent earthquake occurred, and now we get very cosmic signs that are common Old Testament language for kind of total upheaval. And like the other symbols, the horses, which I don't think they're going to be literal horses coming out. These may or may not be literal in their happenings, but they're symbolic of great upheaval that happens. Some may be literal, some may be, um, some may be uh, symbolic, but we'll keep the main things the main things. Uh, he says, a violent earthquake occurred. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of hair. The entire moon became like blood. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its unripe 
figs when shaken by a high wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was moved from its place. Wow. By the way, these signs that we just listed, many of them were also included as a fulfillment. In Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit was given uh, at Pentecost. So it's got like shake, God has shaken things up. And sometimes it's in a very positive way and it's in people. And other times it's in justice and judgment, which is the context here. He says, verse 15, then the kings of the earth, those who have persecuted you, those who have thought they were God, those who taught falsehood, the nobles, the generals, the rich, the powerful, who exploited you, who, who, who persecuted you. And every slave and free person hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne from the wrath, from the wrath of the Lamb. Because the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? This sixth sign of cosmic upheaval, the symbol, the reality is God eventually on earth brings justice. He does make things right. He will judge evil. He will come against those and set right and vindicate those who have followed him and bring justice upon evil and evildoers in this world. We live in a just world. We have a just God. And although sometimes our sensibilities recoil from this sort of language, yet if we don't have a world in which justice is eventually um, judged, then, then we have no hope. But God, he gives many opportunities for people to believe. But if they persist and reject his love and mercy, eventually there will be judgment because of their sin and evil. And this is what's pictured in the sixth seal that is broken. The day finally arrives when God puts his foot down, when the era of mercy and gospel come to an end. And all those who have trusted in Jesus enter into an incredible kingdom and glory, which we'll find out in the rest of the book of Revelation. And those who have rejected him uh, receive his justice. Now, sometimes you wonder when you hear all of these, um, these, uh, these images, why, why is God showing all of these images? And I love, uh, Peter Hyatt writes it this way. He says, at the seventh seal, like the edge of a great crescendo, there's an awesome silence. And what is released in these seals as they're broken are the realities necessary for understanding the meaning of the scroll that's going to be unrolled. Whatever is in the scroll is worthy of all the tribulation of history that we endure. We may not see it very clearly yet, but we sure do complain every time a horseman comes riding along, one of those four horsemen. And we don't sing very loudly or very often with those angels and saints around the throne, holy, 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 to the one who breaks the seal. But how can we sing when we live in a world of deception and warfare and famine and death? He says... And I remember this myself as well, so I could relate to his story. He says, I remember sitting in a movie theater as a young man, watching incredible violence on the screen. There was a man with dark hair and eyes of Mediterranean descent, nearly naked and covered with blood. An angry mob, thirsty for violence, cheered as he was beaten beyond recognition, as one from whom my men hide their faces. In his pain and agony, he cried out for his beloved. And just when I thought he was dead for sure, a host of trumpets broke in with a theme song. 
Growing strong now, won't be long now. Rocky Balboa was making his comeback. Yes, Rocky, this theme song of, of the Revelation. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty is playing the entire time these seals are being opened and the horsemen are riding across the face of the earth. The theme song changes things. It tells us that we are about to receive a revelation of glory. In the movie, the theme song reveals the glory of Rocky Balboa. That means Apollo Creed and the Russian guy and Mr. T are all means by which we can see and know the glory of Rocky in the end. The theme song tells you don't be fooled. It's almost glory time. Let me translate for you. Holy, holy, holy is Rocky Balboa kind of is, is what Rocky's saying. That is Rocky is different from all the other fighters. He loves Adrian, his bride, so much that when she shows up in the Colosseum, nothing can stop him. That is Rocky will endure his fight, despising the shame for the joy that is set before him. Adrian! Right? Without the adversary of Apollo Creed, we would never know the, the, the glory of Rocky Balboa. Without the cross, we would never know the glory of Easter. Without the four horsemen of the apocalypse, we'd never know the content of the scroll and the glory that is to come. Without a tribulation that's difficult and challenging, those desperate days, we'd never learn the new song that we can sing. We'd never learn to have daring faith in those desperate times. So guys, who is able to stand? That's how, the, that's how this, uh, this, uh, this passage ends. On that great day of their wrath has come, who is able to stand? And that question will be answered next week when we look at Revelation chapter 7. It's amazing, amazing and encouraging promises to the people of God, to us. In the meantime, we need more Rockies. We need more people who will persevere, who will love deeply, who will keep going strong against all the odds, who will have daring faith in desperate times. So let's look at this now. Our response. What's our response? You can fill in the rest of your chart, right? Uh, seal number one, this white horse, the conquest. Instead of falling for the false teaching, we believe and we share the true gospel. We aren't gullible. We, we listen to the truth and we believe the word of God. And there's all sorts of fakes that we need to avoid and flakes that we need to just ignore, right? In other words, we believe in Jesus, the one true gospel. And we share the true gospel. These are the days when desperate days, people need to hear the truth, guys. And, and we've got a deadline in front of us. And there's nothing like a deadline to get stuff done. People don't act without a deadline. And here's the deal. One day, history will come to an end. We don't have forever. We have now. We don't even know what tomorrow will bring. And we know de days can be desperate. We're living in some desperate days. When we see the bad stuff happening, don't be deceived. Don't be alarmed. Stand firm. Be daring in your faith. This is not the time to freak out. This is not to become fearful, to chase down all sorts of conspiracy theories and make charts and graphs and timelines and speculate these are the days to share the good news and not fall for the white horse God, pretender. Be daring your faith. Start praying, start relating, keep loving people, keep on caring about the lost people around us and be bold in your faith. Do good works, build goodwill and see and seize the opportunities to share the good news. That's what we're talking about. And by the way, I want to remind you also, please sign up these are the days to, 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 
to, to get equipped and to get bold in our faith. And this is why I want to encourage you. We only got 90 days till the Good for All Conference. Please, I beg of you, plead with you, get signed up. We have fantastic speakers. Here's some of them. Bob Goff, Hosanna Wong. She's going to light this place up. Rebecca McLaughlin received Book of the Year Award. Matthew Stanford talking about mental health in our days and all the crazy stuff that's going down. You got to hear that. And then Chris and Elizabeth McKinney is going to be talking about neighboring as well as Jeannie Marie about our international neighbors. It's going to be great stuff. So these are the days for the gospel. And get signed up and be daring your faith. Keep going on though. Second, the second seal, the raging red horse. Instead of giving you the rage and the anger, let's become faithful peacemakers. Peter said, the end of all things is near. Therefore, love one another deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Jesus, blessed are the peacemakers because they will be called the children of God. These are the days, yeah, there's, it's being a faithful peacemaker. I'm not saying roll over, become a doormat, be ignorant, don't stand for the truth. Of course we stand for that. But be faithful, but be a peacemaker. Look for common ground, look to build bridges, and look to find ways where we can bring the hope of Jesus instead of just the complaints of our own selfishness and, and hearts. It's okay to be opposed to evil, but overcome evil with good, not with anger, not with the weapons of the enemy, but the weapons of Jesus. Third is the black horse scarcity. When everyone else is freaking out because they are afraid that they're not going to have enough, as believers in Jesus, we know God will provide. So we choose instead to live with radical hospitality, welcoming strangers and people, welcome new people into our lives, into our homes, into our neighborhoods, into our block parties. And we live with radical generosity. We reject the scarcity mentality and we say no to that. We reject the stockpiling, the hoarding, the accumulating mentality of the, of the preppers. And instead, we get daring in our faith and say, I believe that there's a God who reigns and rules. Because I read Revelation 4 and 5 about God on the throne and Jesus, the lion who's conquered. And I'm going to be generous. First Peter, again, chapter 4, verse 7 says, the end of all things is near. And he goes on to list a few things. He says, therefore, practice hospitality without grumbling. The world's coming to an end. Therefore, have people over for dinner. Throw a block party. Live a life of grace and generosity. Meet the needs around you. Give generously to the mission of the church. Give generously to causes uh, like we've been talking about here at Valley that, that, that can make a difference. Invite people to your block party. Invite them to the classic car show coming up. Begin to build bridges and reject the scarcity mentality. Um, I love what Hosanna Wong, um, she, um, she wrote a great book. I recommend it. She's coming here at Good for All Conference, How Not to Save the World. Here's a quote from Hosanna Wong. Uh, she said, there is no mandate to save the world. There is a mission for you to love the world Jesus came to save. Oh, that's good stuff. Right now, I'm talking about it. Um... And there has been some incredible generosity at Valley Church. I mean, so many of you, according to your abilities, have been so generous in, in helping to make a difference in our neighborhood, in our community, and the mission of Jesus Christ moving forward. Just absolutely amazing. Uh, a fourth seal is, um, is the pale horse that's death by calamity. Um, the answer to that, I think, 
is that we need to pray boldly. Even in the face of death, we need to pray for God's healing. We need to be believers who actually believe God can heal people and can do amazing things. And to pray for those who are hurting. There are so many hurting people in this fallen and broken world. And you don't have to go very far. You just have to open your eyes, pray with your eyes wide open, and God will bring into your sphere people who are hurting, people who are sick, people who are really not doing well. And you pray for them. And then you serve them compassionately. You go out of your way. That's what the early church did. When the Romans, when the plague came through and the Romans were all throwing people out in the streets and they scattered from the city, it was the Christian who picked up the sick and hurting in the streets and brought them into their own homes. And many of those people, some of them died, but many of them they nursed back to health. And of course, huge numbers of them came to know faith in Jesus. So when the plague was over and all the people came in from the countryside and moved back in, the entire communities had come to know Jesus Christ. That's how the gospel spread. Be the good Samaritan. When everybody else runs away from death by calamity and hardship and difficulty, you run toward it as a compassionate follower of Jesus. Fifth seal, the souls under the altar with martyrdom. He says, wait. Wait and I will vindicate you. Here, we learn to cultivate patience. It, you know what? There, wait is a four-letter word. It, it's one of those hard words for us to swallow. But so many times God says, wait, be patient, wait on me, don't run ahead, don't set up your own throne, wait on my throne, rely on me to give the answer, don't take revenge, be patient, and also have some courage. Be prepared. Manage your expectations to know that it's possible that you are going to suffer some hardship and persecution in this life. And there are some believers around the world and maybe someday in our lives that, you know, it may cost you your life. Um, cultivate patience and courage. Peggy Noonan once wrote these words. She said, I think we have lost the old knowledge that happiness is overrated, that in a way life is overrated. We have lost somehow, she says, a sense of mystery about us, our purpose, our meaning, our role. Our ancestors believed in two worlds and understood this world to be the solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short one. We are the first generations that actually expected to find happiness here on earth. And our search for that happiness has created such unhappiness. And the reason, she says... If you do not believe in another higher world, if you believe only in the flat material world around you, if you believe that that is your only chance at happiness, if that is what you believe, then you are not disappointed when the world does not give you a good measure of its riches. You are despairing. You're not just disappointed, you're despairing. And so believers in Jesus, we have a higher calling. We have a different view of the world. We're patient and we have courage. And the sixth and final symbol is when Jesus comes and returns and sets all things right and brings redemption and justice to this world, we trust fully in Jesus. We don't trust in all the kings and rulers that are all hiding in the rocks and caves. They're not going to be here. They're not going to help you out. They're all going to be fleeing. We trust fully in Jesus. When it gets difficult in desperate days, that's the time to have a daring faith in the one who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame.
and sat down at the right hand of the Father in great glory. Trust fully in Jesus today. I love what the Apostle Paul wrote. But since we belong to the day, not to the night, but to the day, let us be self-controlled and put on the armor of faith and love and the helmet of the hope of salvation. Yes, these are desperate days, but these are days to live with daring faith. Father in heaven, thank you for this incredible chapter six. And I pray, oh God, that as we read this and take this all in, that you would just supernaturally fill our hearts with courage, with patience, with peace, to be able to meet any challenges we may face, knowing that this is part of your plan. We don't understand all the mysteries of that, but we trust that you know what you're doing. And in the meantime, we follow you, no matter how difficult it may come at times, we follow you and look ultimately not to ourselves, nor to the world, but to you for our hope, for our security, for our confidence, for our joy, for love, and ultimately for eternal salvation. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And everybody agreed and said, Amen. Amen. God bless you all.